Good morning, Boker Tov. We have the privilege this morning of studying Parshas Bahar together, which begins in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash, page 696. Bahar is normally or often linked with Bechukosai, but this week we read it alone, so we have the ability to concentrate directly on Bahar. The overwhelming majority of the Parsha of Bahar deals with the laws of Shemitah, which we'll take a look at uh, together, and then gets into the second half, transitions into the question of how you deal with a poor indigent person, our responsibility towards them, and hopefully we'll get to, we'll speak about the link or the connection between these two sections, which don't necessarily seem like a uh, logical or absolutely logical flow. So the parsha begins, God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai, and he had a message, tell them, when you enter the land, you are to observe a Shabbos for God. And the Shabbos that we observe for God is not a typical Shabbos of 24, 25 hours. Of course, the Parsha is dealing with the issue of Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Now, the Parsha begins with a reference, a connection between Shemitah and Harsinai. And Rashi asks the famous question, Ma inyan Shemitah itzel Harsinai? What in the world is the connection between Shemitah and Harsinai? Why are we invoking Harsinai in order to launch into the laws of Shemitah? All the Torah, 613 mitzvahs, were all given at Harsinai. So why don't we say when it comes to the Shatnez, Kelayim, when it comes to some other mitzvah, Shabbos, Kashras, Shofar, Lulav, why don't we introduce it? Bahar Sinai, why specifically Shemitah? Ma inyan Shemitah etzel Har Sinai. Elam ha-Shemitah nemru klalosau pratosau v'diktukea. Just like Shemitah, the details, the rules, the big picture, the minutia, they were all misinai, it all comes from Sinai. Av kula nemru klalosau v'diktukea misinai. So too all Torah and mitzvos, all the broad principles as well as the detailed minutia rules, they all come from Har Sinai. So Rashi asks the famous question, I've shared before many times, Rabbi J.J. Schachter quotes a story. He was in Israel in a hotel. He turned on the TV. It was the show Kojak, and I forgot the name of the side character. Asks him, what does it have to do with the price of tea in China? And the Hebrew subtitles on the bottom, what does it have to do with the price of tea in China? Said, Ma inyan shmita etzel har sinai. Right? Mamash, what a country that Rashi is broadcast as subtitles. Implicit in the translation of pop culture is a Rashi. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? What does one thing have to do with the other? The Rechaim HaKadosh and our parish is bothered. He said, how did Rashi answer his question? I understand Shemitah is the model of a mitzvah whose principles and details are given, and we extrapolate from there to all mitzvahs that both the broad concepts and the details are all given at our Sinai. But that wasn't the question. The question was, why is Shemitah chosen as the example where the broad principles and details were given? And from there, we say that's true for all mitzvahs. Why was Shemitah selected? And the Rechaim HaKadosh gives one answer. I would like to humbly suggest to you on this fine morning another answer. There most certainly is a fundamental, intrinsic connection between Shemitah and Harsinai. And I want to suggest to you the following. How many people here have been to the Kotel? Good. Almost, if not every hand in the room went up. Don't answer this, but how many have been to Harsinai? The truth is, there's suggestions, there are ideas, 
We're not even sure exactly where Hasinai is. Josephus and other Jewish sources identify Matsanai with a location in northwestern Arabia, east of the Red Sea. Others say it's in the Sinai Peninsula. But either way, the bottom line is, we're unsure exactly where Harsinai is, and we have no mandate or religious imperative to make a pilgrimage there. We don't go there. What happened there was a one-time event. It happens to be the most seminal event in human history. Hashem gave us His sacred Torah with its timeless teachings. It happened once thousands of years ago, and we haven't visited. We don't go back. We've never returned. The Kotel, which is Har Habayis, Har Hamoriah, those who go on top of the Har Habayis, those who stand at the, mount, at the base of the mountain, but that mountain continues to play a central role. We face there when we daven. We wouldn't imagine visiting Israel without going to the Kotel. We pour out our hearts. We feel a visceral, emotional connection there. And yet Har Sinai, gone. So Har Hamoriah, whose significance goes back to Avram Avinu, and then Yitzchak and Yaakov, it's the center of the Jewish universe. But, uh, but when, it comes to, when it comes to Har Sinai, we don't even know where it is, let alone make an effort to go. Why the difference between the two? So Rabbi Soloveitchik suggested that there's a fundamental difference between these mountains. One retained its sacred status permanently, and the other was only temporary. Said the Rav, Kedusha's sanctity is never a function of a geographic location. Kedusha is the result of human effort, human initiative, human input, human service, human endeavor, human commitment. Kedusha, holiness, is the result of when we interact, when we form, we fashion, when we are involved. Harsinai was only sanctified with temporary, temporal sanctity. Why? Because it was top down. As long as Hashem came to Harsinai, and visited the mountain with His Divine Presence in order to transmit to us His sacred Torah, there was holiness. But the moment HaKadosh Baruch Hu withdrew His holiness, He moved on. He completed the task of giving the Torah. It lost its holiness. The holiness left. So we're not even sure where it is, and it has no religious significance or value to us. Har HaMoriah, Har HaBayas, on the other hand, was not sanctified because Hashem visited it, but rather it has an eternal sanctity and it remains a holy spot today. Why? Harsinai is submissiveness. It's passive compliance. It was a spectator event. It was entirely top-down. It was God in search of man. But Harabayis, Haramoriah, is exactly the opposite. It's our being proactive and engaged. It's being invested in taking initiative. It is not God in search of us. When we go to the Kotel, when we go and went to the base of Mikdash, it was man in search of God. So I want to suggest to you that for six years, Hashem instructs us, be active, manipulate, control, discover, innovate, make progress in His world, Vikivshua. God says, here's my earth, you are the stewards of it. Go take it apart, understand it, build, innovate, create, master, and control it. The seventh year is Shemitah. In the seventh year, Hashem says, stop, be submissive. Be subservient. Be docile. In the seventh year, be passive. In the seventh year, be at peace with nature and at peace with my earth. Shemitah is the Harsinai mitzvah par excellence. Because both Shemitah and Harsinai are about nullifying ourselves and relying entirely on Hashem. It's a Kedusha that comes top down. It's Hashem's presence and we are passive spectators. 
So on the one end, Shemitah is learned from Harsinai, I want to suggest, because Shemitah is exactly what Harsinai was about. Harsinai was about passive spectator receiving, accepting God's in search of us, receiving Kedusha that comes from Hashem. What happens the other six years in between? It's not a coincidence, the Torah says, Sheish shanim tizras sadecha, Sheish shanim tizmor karmecha. Six years, plant, six years, care for your vineyard. Asafta tvuasa and gather, and then bashana ashris, shabash shabason In the seventh year, then and only then, is it Shabbos. Let's say you say, you know, I like my sabbatical so much, I'm going to take it all seven years. I like a sabbatical so much, I'm going to go into permanent retirement immediately without even working a day in my life. So the Torah tells us, and the Mepharshim are quick to point out, and this is so critically important, for the Jewish people, work is not a concession. For the Jewish people, work, for Torah personalities, work is not something we do because Nebuch, we have no other choice. Work is a value. It's the way that we emulate HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the Torah tells us, when do you deserve that sabbatical? When for six years you worked hard. Be in the field, break your back, bake in the sun. Get the satisfaction and the pride of bringing in a harvest. It's a challenge in today's generation. The Magiali, a sense of entitlement. Nobody wants to work, nobody wants to make an effort, and nobody wants to feel the pride of being independent, of accomplishing and achieving, and being able to be on their own. Says the Torah, you want Shabbat Shabbason, you want to merit a sabbatical? Earn it, work for it, feel the pride that comes. So perhaps I'm suggesting to you that's what Rashi means, that Mayan Shemitah al Sinai. Why was Shemitah chosen as the archetype that just like its broad principles and its details all come from Sinai, why Shemitah? Why not learn this rule with some other mitzvah? Shemitah is the perfect. Shemitah is a Har Sinai experience. But lest you think that our life should be entirely Har Sinai Shemitah experiences, no, that's once every seven years. Six years we're at Har HaMoriah. Six years we're we're working hard, we're planting, we're trying to understand the world. The seventh year we're passive, but the six years we're not complacent or apathetic or indifferent. We engage and we work hard and we craft and we accomplish and we achieve and we feel that pride. And perhaps that's what Rashi is alluding to of the connection between Shemitah and Harsina. Now, moving along. Notice the Torah says, when does this mitzvah shvinta apply to you? When? It's when you enter the land. That I am translate the word nosein. It's in the present tense. It's in Hoved. That I am giving you. So of Nachman of Breslau, the Breslau points out, shouldn't it say, Asher nasati lachem? When you enter the land that I gave you. When did God give us the land? Even before we entered it. It was promised to Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov, and we knew, we know, that Eretz Yisrael, Yerushalayim, Har Habayis, it's all Kodesh HaKadoshim, it's the center of the entire universe. So the Pasuk should say, when you enter the land, Asher Nasati, the land that I gave you. Why does it say the land, Asher Ani Nosein, that I am giving you? So Rav Nachman of Breslov says that a Jew in Israel, in our relationship with Israel, 
and please God one day living in Israel, those who are meriting to live there now, and those of us who are not figuring out if but when, should have the attitude not of nasati that God gave me, but every day, it should be fresh. What a gift. What a bracha. What miracles. Never stale, never taken for granted, never assumed, never <clears throat> with an attitude nasati that it's permanent. It could be taken away, we could lose it. And we have to therefore cherish it. We have a responsibility to steward the great gift of the modern miracle of Israel. And I love this insight of Rav Nachman of Breslov. We're coming up on, bless you, we're between Yom Atzmut, Yom Yerushalayim, but Asher Ani no Sein Lachem. Our attitude towards Eretz Yisrael has to be not, ah, there were miracles, I've gotten used to them, it's the place I go for sukkahs to visit my kid in Israel and uh, to vacation, but Asher Ani no Sein Lachem. Every day that we stop and think, wow, after 2,000 years, you can walk the streets of Israel, of Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh, the gift and the safety and security, which as threatened as it is, is safer than it's ever been. And we are safer than we've ever been. Asher Ani no Sein Lachem. It's not Nasati, it's not in the past, but the sense of a gift and the blessing and the miracle should be as fresh and new each and every day. In the words of Rav Nachman, should be as sweet each and every day that it's Asher Ani no Sein, that he continues to, he continues to give it to us. Good. Rabbi Salavitchik points out in the Rabbi Salavitchik Chumash, In the Rabbi Soloveitchik Chumash, Bahar Sinai, actually before I share the Rabbi Soloveitchik, I'll tell you another insight of Rav Aaron of Bells. Rav Aaron of Bells, so we shared Ma'in and Shemitah Eitzel Sinai. I give you one suggestion, I told you that Rechaim HaKadosh asks on Rashi, how did he answer his question? We offered one suggestion. There's the Harsinai paradigm, and there's the Har HaMoriah paradigm. Shemitah parallels Harsinai. The six years of work parallel Har HaMoriah, a Kedusha which is fleeting, top-down, versus the Kedusha which is lasting and permanent, which comes from the bottom up. But Aaron of Bell shares a second insight into what is the connection Ma'inyan Shemitah Eitzel Harsinai. Again, the Orachayim said, couldn't we have learned this when it comes to any mitzvah? Isn't it true about every mitzvah? So he explained that it says, V'shav ta'aretz Shabbos Lashem. Why are you letting the land rest? So I might have thought, you know why? I'm an environmentalist. I love trees and I love the earth and I love the soil. And therefore, out of compassion, I want the earth to rejuvenate and to re-energize and to heal, and I love the earth, and we have to protect it. So why am I observing Shemitah? For the earth. Because the earth is an end to itself. The earth is a source of our concern and care. Says the Torah, you know why you're observing Shemitah? Don't be confused. You can be an environmentalist, nothing wrong. Be green, environmentally concerned and sensitive, and care about protecting and preserving our sacred earth. It's a trust God gave us. We read about back in Sefer Bereshis. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not minimizing, nor certainly not mocking. But that's not why we observe Shemitah. You want to know why we observe Shemitah? Says of Aaron of Bells, look at the Torah, it tells us. V'shavta ha'aretz Shabbos, why? Lashem. The whole reason is, because told us. And that's ma'inyan Shemitah Eitzel Sinai. Just like Shemitah makes sense to you, and you say you could be an atheist environmentalist and also care about giving the earth a sabbatical. But no, that's not why. It's because Lashem, we're doing it because God says, jump, we say how high. 
That's Ma'inyan Shemitah Eitzel Sinai. So too with other mitzvahs that you might think, I understand exactly why it makes sense to me. I can be an atheist and still want to keep or observe it. Kosh says, no, Lashem. The reason we do mitzvahs is not because they make sense. It's not because they're compelling. That may make it easier. It makes it more pleasurable. It makes us more motivated. But it's not why. The why of why we do mitzvahs is Kodesh Baruch Hu told us. He says, jump. We say how high. V'shav ta'aretz Shabbos Lashem. Just like Shemitah's Lashem, so too every mitzvah that came from Har Sinai is from Hashem. Back to Rabbi Salavichik. So Rabbi Salavichik says, Behar Sinai, in Parshas Achrei Mos, the Torah describes a land filled with sanctity that cannot abide transgression. Parshas Bahar expands on the theme in discussing the mitzvahs of Shemitah and Yovel. Eretz Yisrael is under God's direct providence. It is a land the Lord your God looks after. The eyes of your Lord are there from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Pasuk and Dvarim. When we express concern about the ability to observe Shemitah, the Torah reminds us, Eretz Yisrael is not an ordinary land. It will respond to the needs of the Jewish people just as caring individual responds to the needs of a loved one. Eretz Yisrael has a vibrant, vital personality that distinguishes it from all other lands. Said the Rav, Eretz Yisrael is unique, it's singular. Just like the Torah is unique and the Jewish people are unique, Eretz Yisrael, this threefold, the trifold, the tripod upon which our whole religion rests, Torah Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. What is the common theme for all three? Is their singularity, their uniqueness. They are a skula. We are an Am skula, and Eretz Yisrael is a land that is skula. And the Torah, what does it mean to be a skula? It means unique, it means singular, it means special, different, distinguished, apart. Eretz Yisrael could only be in Eretz Yisrael. We once gave a whole shir, you can find it online on my website, but we gave a whole shir about why, in fact, the Zionist Congress, when Herzl proposed making Israel in Uganda, and the Mizrahi was prepared to vote for it because they thought it's a step, let there at least be Jewish sovereignty and a Jewish land, and ultimately it can be moved. But it was the secular who voted against it, kind of ironically, and the history of it's fascinating. But why could it never be in Uganda? Why can't we relocate to some other piece of land? In that year, I introduced it with an article from somebody on the internet, I have no idea who they are, and certainly they don't seem to bear any authority, who suggested that Israel should be in Germany. The reparations Germany should give to the Jews for what happened, sounds like a Rashida Tlaib proposal, but it should have been in, in Germany. It can't be anywhere else in the world but Israel, because Israel for us, Eretz Israel, Medina Israel, is not just Jewish sovereignty and a Jewish na nationhood, Jewish peoplehood, it's not just a Jewish state, it's about the very soil, the earth, the land is categorically different than dirt, than soil, than earth, anywhere else. It's the only place where we have mitzvahs ba'aretz. It's a land that's a skula, that if we go there, people who are struggling in fertility and struggling in this and struggling in that, there's a special auspiciousness to the land that's categorically different than anywhere else on earth. And says Rabbi Salavechik, included in that categorical differences is a moral compass that the earth of Israel has that nowhere else has. And if morally those living in the land are corrupt, the earth will vomit us out. And that's what the Torah is telling us in this passage, continuing here with Shemitah. And the Rav writes this again in the words, Vishav Taha'aretz, the land shall rest Shabbos. Torah speaks of a land defiled, and of a land resting, and of a land observing Shemitah. 
The land of Israel possesses a distinct personality. It's likened to a human being who can be defiled or can be sanctified, can rest and can be appeased. Just as a Jew observes Shabbos once a week, the land of Israel observes Shabbos once every seven years. In this way, the land of Israel takes on human dimensions. So the earth, the land of Israel, has a personality. It's not like anywhere else. And you can go visit the wonders of the world. And there are other sites on the globe that are magnificent to behold and to see. They are part of the artistic impact of Hashem. We say, Ein sur ke'elokeinu, ein tsayar ke'elokeinu. There's no artist like God. Go to Glacier National Park in Montana. Go to the Swiss Alps. Go to these locations in the world. Go with rustic elegance. It's an excellent way to go. Go to these places in the world and you'll see the hand of Hashem, the greatest artist. But that land is just a land. It's like paint on a canvas. It's a sculpture. The only land that has personality, that lives and breathes, that can either be sanctified through the acts of the people who live on it, or can be defiled and spit out because of the corruption of the people who live on it, that's only the land of Israel. <coughs> only the land of Israel. And I think it's interesting that we're reading it this week, and I share this with no conclusion, but submit it for your consideration. But there was some big debate in Israel this week in hosting Eurovision. For some, Kiddush Hashem, Israel has arrived, this great international European contest and celebrities and stars who came, and wow, Israel, the Jewish people, have broken through to the mainstream. Isn't it amazing? And for others, the dress and the culture and the songs and the Chilo Shabbos and the activity, who needs it? Israel doesn't need it. It's a corruption of the land. And I have a certain, I lean in a certain direction on that question. But I'm not here, certainly, let our brothers and sisters who live in Israel decide about it. I'm not here to weigh in. But simply, when we talk about whether an Israel should host a Eurovision, it shouldn't be only from an emotional place of, we've broken through and it's amazing and it's so cool. It has to be from a religious moral position of, would the land of Israel, the personality of the land of Israel, be happy to host it? Would you host Eurovision in your shul, in the sanctuary of your shul? Would you want Eurovision with your children and grandchildren in the audience? So the land of Israel has a personality, has a consciousness, has a moral compass, and it becomes sanctified or it will purge and vomit out those who corrupt her. And it's fascinating that that happens specifically in these parshios and right now with Parshas Bahar, where we see Veshav Taha'aretz. It's not the Jewish people take a sabbatical on the land. The land has a sabbatical. The land is sanctified. The land has a personality, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik. Okay, there's a lot more to talk about about Shemitah. We're not going to get into it right now. But why do we observe Shemitah? Is Shemitah about the land? According to some Mepharshim, it's, it's an expression of our stewardship, of our responsibility to the land. According to others, it is an exercise in Amuna. We're going to get to that. Because the farmer has nothing to eat. And we have heroic farmers who observe Shemitah today. Some rely on the Hatter Mechira, but others, and growing trend is to observe Shemitah today. And in fact, there are efforts and organizations that raise money to support farmers to enable them to observe Shemitah because it's an unpaid sabbatical. It's not the luxury of a paid sabbatical. It is an unpaid sabbatical. How do you support your family during an unpaid sabbatical? So Kodesh Baruch Hu says, don't worry. You'll grow enough in the sixth year to have enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year if you observe Shemitah properly. It's in our parsha, And it's in response to the people asking, but what will we eat? 
how will we maintain ourselves? So Kadosh Baruch Hu makes that promise. But when the farmer makes good on it, it is an exercise in Amunah. The Abar Benel says, Shemitah is time management. Shemitah is a reminder of the incredible value of time. The time is fleeting and time disappears and our responsibility to maximize and to manage our time. And so the farmer is consumed by the cycles of agriculture and of working his farm or her farm to maximize efficiency and to maximize profits spends the seventh year remembering you can spend time differently, learning and growing and bettering ourselves and protecting ourselves, not only protecting our, protecting our fields. So there's a lot more to talk about, about Shemitah. But here the Torah tells us we have to count Shemitah, and when we count Shemitah, we get to Yovel, the notion of observing Yovel. Yovel is a very powerful message too. What happens in Yovel? Property is returned to the original owner. The property is returned to the original owner. And what is the significance of the message of that? There's an exception, Bate Arichoma, homes of a walled city, only within the first year can they be redeemed. If they're not redeemed within, within the end of the first year, then they do not return in Yovel, and you lose the right to get them back as opposed to other properties, which after 50 years, in the 50th year, the Yovel, the Jubilee year, they go back. What's the message? The Mephoshim say a very, very beautiful message. Mephoshim say, you know what the message is? We work hard, you think you accumulate and you amass things in real estate and property, it's all going back. At the end, that's not what you take with you. That's not what you keep, that's not what you have. What you have is what you did with it. What you had are the experiences and the relationships and the difference that you made and the contribution that you left. The things, so basically Yovel is a rehearsal for death. That in our lives we go through the experience of not being able to keep and take something that we acquired to inspire and motivate and remind us that in all of life you can't keep and take that which you've amassed and accumulated. Enjoy the fine things. But at the end of 50 years, it's gone. At the end of 120 years, it's gone. You can't take with you anything you kept. Paradoxically, the only thing that you can take with you is what you gave away. I'm not doing another Friends of BRS. <laughs> Last time we spoke about this, at Parshish Truma, Tetzave, and we did a good appeal for Friends of BRS. But you're, you're the full year of people, so you don't need that spiel. So, but you can't, ironically, you can't take what you keep, you can only take what you give away, and Yovel is the reminder of that. Torah tells us the land shall not be sold permanently. That's the message. The land shall not be sold permanently. The Torah introduces the principle of not selling in perpetuity in two different psukim. And uh, the Rav says one is talking about the Cheftza, one is talking about the Gavra. This is a separate halacha about Eretz Yisrael now. We're talking about you're in Israel. And the Torah here is telling us that in Israel, it's litzmisus. You can't sell it or give it to anyone away. It belongs to us, Israel. It has to be part of the Jewish people. We don't give it away. And why is that? Kigerim v'toshavim atem imadi. If you want to follow inside, I'm on. Pasach of Dalad. Perach of Pasach of Dalad, page 700. The land is mine, don't sell it. There's actually all halachic question in Israel today. Can you rent, can, if you own an Airbnb, can you lease, can you rent, can you sell land in Israel to a non-Jew? 
It's a violation of this halacha. That once God gave us the land and we take residence and ownership of it, Hashem says, don't give it away. You're going to sell your great-grandmother's leichter, her engagement ring. You're going to sell your grandfather's uh, diary. Akash Baruch gave this us. It's an expression of the special bond and connection and the love between us. It belongs to us. Don't sell it. Don't get rid of it. It has to be ours in perpetuity. It belongs to us all the time. And why is that? The Torah says. Why? Because you are gerim and toshavim with me. What does that expression mean? What does that mean? Kigerim, you are strangers and toshavim, residents or temporary residents together with me. And that's the reason you shouldn't sell the land in Israel. What does that mean? Kigerim v'toshavim. So I saw a beautiful explanation. What is it? Kigerim v'toshavim imadi from the tzaddik of Baruch of Mezbuz. But Berach of Mezbuz says, what does it mean? When are you imadi? When you are gerim v'toshavim. When you realize that you're just a visitor to this world. It's not a permanent resident. If you maintain the attitude that I'm just passing through. I'm just a guest. I'm just a visitor. When we live with the mentality of ki gerim v'toshavim, says Hashem, then atem imadi. Then you're with me. You see, if you're with Hashem, then we enter to a higher calling then we understand that there is a immortality, an afterlife, a world that we're really working towards. If you think this world is all that there is, if we seek pleasure in this world, and this world is all we care about and all we pursue, then we're not really with Hashem. To be atem imadi, to be with Hashem, ki gerim v'toshavim, then we preserve and maintain this attitude of, of, uh, of being strangers, of being strangers. Okay, Torah then goes on. This is the part I want to really study together, analyze a little more closely together. We're going to get immediately now into two cases of a person who becomes impoverished, becomes, indige- uh, becomes indigent, a person who struggles financially. And the Torah tells us you can't be indifferent. You can't look the other way. You can't pretend you don't see. You have to stand up and you have to pledge to help. And the question is why? The question is why? And the question is how. So the verse v'chiyamuchachicha is that they have to sell their land. That there has to be the right to redeem it. Notice the language. Translate those words. How do they translate? So it doesn't just mean you become poor. You are poor. Doesn't mean you are poor. means you become destitute. And on these words, Rabbi Soloveitchik says the Torah emphasizes the calamity of becoming destitute as opposed to being destitute. It doesn't say if someone is poor, it says if someone becomes poor. Why? Because the great misfortune of becoming destitute is the experience of loss. There's a well known axiom in life addressed in the Gemara Yuma, Dav Chavtes. Gemara there says, it's more difficult to relearn something forgotten than to learn something new. It's harder to rebuild than to build from scratch. If you build a new business, you have enthusiasm, excitement, zeal, vision. You're ready to go. But to rebuild after becoming bankrupt, a business that, that uh, becomes bankrupt, is much harder. In a similar vein, the tragedy behind old age is the necessity to relearn how to perform old tasks 
and actions that were so facile when one was younger. We can attempt to build a substitute structure. We can never restore the majesty of the original. So part of the sensitivity and the empathy we have to have for the person going through loss is to realize that it's not that when a person is poor, but it's not simply the existence of being poor, it's the experience of becoming poor. It's losing what one had. It is descending, it's falling, and needing to be supported that should motivate, inspire, or obligate us to have a reaction. And included in that is, We have a prohibition. We're not allowed to lend with usury. We're not allowed to lend with interest. It's not just that we can't lend with outrageous interest rates. We can't lend with interest at all. Why can't you lend to a fellow Jew interest? Why can't you lend interest? So the Torah itself tells us why. Torah says, we're now on page... 702. So again, your brother falls, you extend your hand to him and help him, support him. Not only your brother, here a Ger and Toshav also are eligible for your help and support. Don't charge interest, have awe of God, and let your brother live with you. Why shouldn't we do it? Because I am the Lord your God. Then we get into the concept of a Jewish slave and the parsha ends, not to make idols. You enter the land, don't abandon me, says God, and start worshiping other sources of power or influence. Stick with me. So I want to go back and look at this section together. When your brother becomes poor. He becomes poor. How does he become poor? With you. Let's see what this means. So, yeah. Parachafe, Chapter 25, verse 35. We are on page 702. Says Rashi. So the person becomes uh, poor and his means falter. His, his means falter. What does the word imach mean? With you. What do you mean with you? I'm doing great. My stocks are up. I'm in mutual funds and bonds. I own real estate. I'm high yielding uh, whatever. I'm great. What do you mean imach? He's, he's falling. I'm not falling with him. So what does the word imach here mean? Imach. So you look at the art scroll, how does it translate the word Imach? How does it translate the word Imach? It's not a trick question, you're holding a chumash in your hands. In your proximity. Clearly the art scroll itself is struggling with how to translate that word. Imach, with you, if it's not happening to you. So the art scroll says what it means is it's in your proximity. It's in your proximity, that's where it's happening. Imach. Imach. Uh, the Ibn Ezra translates the word imach. You're obligated to be with the person that you see. What does the Ibn Ezra mean? Imach. More than just geographically, physically in your proximity, it means if you're aware of it, you become aware of it, you're not entitled to close and have a blind eye to it. Rav Dov Zev Weinberger, the author of the Shemana Tov, Rav Bernard Weinberger, 
Allah Shalom, he passed away earlier this year. It's a great series. Shaman Atov, a brilliant, brilliant series. He has a magnificent insight on this pasuk, Imach. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says, Da malamala mimach. Know what is above you. I in Rowan, I see those in Shamas, and your hears. The Masecha Nechtovim, and all of your actions are being recorded. And this is the classic Mishnah, which we're supposed to be mindful of always. Wherever we are and whatever we're doing, know there are security cameras. And they have microphones. And everything we're doing is being recorded. And you look around and you say, I don't see a security camera here. The Rebona Shalom has a camera on you. And some describe that the experience of when we go upstairs, they define, you know what hell is? Watching a videotape of the most uncomfortable moments of your life with Hashem. We have the capacity to edit. It's called tshuva. If you're concerned that some of those video are going to be shown in front of the Rebona Shalom and other people you care about, we have the edit button. We can edit our lives through the process of tshuva. But kol ma'asecha b'sefer nechtovim. I and Ro, there's an eye seeing, Ozen Shamas, there's an ear listening. And kol ma'asecha b'sefer nechtovim, because Baruch is recording everything. That's the classic way of understanding, understanding that Mishnah Novos. But the Heliga Bashem Tov, Bashem Tov has a different understanding of what this Mishnah means. Bashem Tov says the following Da malamala mimach. Know what is above you. You know what is above you? There's a Ribbono Shalom. And the Ribbono Shalom has a master plan. And everything that's happening in your life, nothing is by coincidence and nothing is random or chance. It is all by design. And because it's by design, ayin roe. What you see, you were meant to see. And ozen, shoma'as. What you hear, you were meant to hear. And how you react and how you respond to what you saw and what you heard, that will be recorded for posterity. That will define who you are. In other words, it says the Bashem Tov, nothing's a coincidence. So you happen to be somewhere where you overheard someone say something. You happen to be somewhere and you saw something. You're not entitled to close your eyes or close your ears and keep walking. You were meant to see that. And you were meant to hear that. And the Baal Shem Tov said this and it's applied in many contexts. If you see something that disturbs you, if you see something that makes you happy, if you see an opportunity, whatever we see or experience or hear, that is by design. No, there's a Hashem above us and He orchestrated it. So that I and Ro, we see what we were meant to see in Ozen Shamas, what we hear, what we were meant to hear. And now, the question, the burden's on us. What are you going to do? Because So says the Shem Tov, applying this insight of the Bashem Tov, that's what it means. The person became destitute imach in your proximity. In your proximity. Why did HaKadosh Baruch orchestrate things that you overheard or you saw or you became aware or you know about their pain or their need or their challenge or their struggle? You know Why? So you can strengthen him. Just like we have a responsibility to intervene and to help and to make a difference. We're not entitled to just look away. You see something, you got to say something. You got to do something. Not just when it comes to safety and security, but when it comes to helping people. You become aware of someone, you can't pretend you didn't see or you don't know you have to, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made you see because there's something you can do. You may not be able to write the big check, but you may have the connection. 
you may have access to the doctor, you may have the ability to support and to help. And that's what the word imach in this context means. The word imach means that it happened near you, not by accident. It happened near you by design, because it's a call for you to respond and to make a difference. And v'hechazaktaba, what difference can you make? Such an incredible insight, says Rashi. Why does it say v'hechazaktaba? It's a funny word, v'hechazaktaba. Strengthen. Al-tanichayu sheyered v'yipo, v'yekoshalakimo, elochaskeyo mishas motas hayad. L'mazadoma, l'masoi shalachamor. Says Rashi, you have something which is extraordinarily heavy. If it falls, it's very hard to lift. But if it's falling, it's hard, it's easier to set straight. It's much easier when something is tipping over to catch it and set it straight. Once it has fallen, it's much harder to lift up. And what's true for a physical burden or weight is true for people, says Rashi. A person is falling it's easier to catch them and set them straight on their feet and on their way. But if they fall in and now they're lying, it's much, much harder to lift them up. And that's why the Torah says, Vehechazakta. Catch them before they fall all the way. Catch them on their way down. It'll be much easier. It'll be much easier to help. And then what's the responsibility? Just like Matayado Imach, the responsibility is Vechai, where? Imach, with us. Says, the Ramban on the Pasuk. V'chai achicha imach, sheyichye imach, to live with you. V'hi mitzvah sasei l'achayosa. This is a positive commandment to sustain him. Shemimena nestavinu apikuach nefesh b'mitzvah sasei. This is the source of v'chai imach, that we have a Torah obligation of pikuach nefesh that supersedes all the other prohibitions of the Torah. Umikan amru v'chai imach, v'chai achicha imach. And this is the source of the great machlokas ben Petura and Rabbi Akiva, if you're walking in the desert, in 2015 there was a case like this. French tourists were found dead in the white sand dunes of New Mexico desert. Their 10-year-old son was found alive. And why was he alive? Because their water supply they gave to him to live, and they died. For each sip they each took, they gave him two, and that was enough to keep him alive, even though they died. That's the famous Gemara. Two people are walking in the desert, and the one canister of water... And if you share it, you'll both die. If you keep it, you'll live. The other person will die. And Rabbi Ben Petura says, share it. And says, Rabbi Akiva, v'chai, but chai imach. You have to make sure other people live. But imach, first you have to make sure you live. We spoke about this the same Rabbi Akiva. kamocha. Love yourself and then love your neighbors as yourself. But not as much as yourself that you give your life for them. That's the famous machlokas between Ben Petura and Rabbi Akiva. And here the Ramban the Ramban uh, mentions it. The Torah then says, Al tikach meito, because you have an obligation to sustain him, to support him, to love him, don't take what? Don't take, don't take interest. Are you allowed to charge interest to a non-Jew? Yes. Why can you charge interest to a non-Jew? Is charging interest moral or immoral? Ethical or unethical? Charging interest is perfectly ethical without getting into uh, economics 101, but there's a time value of money. If I have my $1,000 for the next year, it can earn money. If I lend you my $1,000, when you give me back $1,000 at the end of the year, you haven't made me whole because my $1,000 could have been my $1,000 plus interest. 
when I give you, when I lend you money, there's a time value to money, so I deserve to be made whole. So if on the $1,000 I could have made $100, you should have to give me back $1,100 just to make me whole. There's a time value of money. There's a time value of money. When I went to Kellogg for a summer and their advanced executive program and the whole part of the, it was not a Jewish program, I was the only Jew on the program, let alone member of the clergy. Um, it's on background why I went on that program, which was fantastic. They spent a couple days studying inventory and, and, and so on. For those executives, it was fascinating. But I specifically remember we studied as a case study Dell computers. If you go online and you order a Dell computer, let's say it costs $1,000, you give them $1,000 right now. They then go order all the parts to assemble your computer. But they don't pay the parts companies for 90 days. So Dell Computers makes a lot of money off of the computer they sold you, but you know what they make even more money from? Holding on to your $1,000 for those 90 days before they have to pay their bill. There's a time value to money. You can make money off of having money. And if I lend you money, I can't make money off of my money. So it's not unethical to charge interest. In fact, to a certain degree, it's unethical not to pay interest. You've cost someone more money than they lent you. So lending with interest to a non-Jew is perfectly permissible, it's perfectly ethical. So why can't I lend with interest to a Jew? So look at the Pasuk, because the Pasuk itself tells me the answer. The Pasuk says, Why? Because He's your brother. See, if a stranger needs to borrow $100 and I say, you can borrow it, but you gotta pay me back at 5%, I'm perfectly ethical, I've done nothing wrong. But if my brother needs a hundred bucks and I say you could pay me back and I charge interest, I'm a jerk. I'm a real lowlife. We don't interact with our family the way we do with strangers. I'm not talking about a business opportunity, a business setting, so you set it up with a heter iska to look like an investment. I'm talking about your brother can't keep the lights on. Your brother, your sister can't put food on their table. I say, can I borrow money? And you say, sure, but you know there's a time value of money, so you have to pay me back with interest. That's your brother, it's your sister, it's your parents, it's your child. What is the matter with you? So the Torah says when it comes to non-Jews, when it comes to our extended family, and they are extended family humanity, then you can learn with interest. There's nothing immoral. But if we're going to cultivate a sense of achicha, that the Jewish people are our brothers, we don't lend our brothers with interest. That, that is wrong. That is something which is wrong. By the way, going back, the Orachayim HaKadosh says, It's a beautiful Orachayim here, who says it's not just talking about financially. All the principles we learned, catch him before he falls, it's easier to make him upright than it is to pick him up altogether. Imach, it happened in your vicinity. All the lessons of the Pasuk of the person who, as the Rav said, not just is destitute, but who becomes or falls to a position of being destitute, doesn't just apply to physical or financial, but applies to spiritual. Says the Orachayim, Parsha Zu Tayyar Adam Aruach Hashem. Ki Amuch Achicha Uruach Achayim, Asher Nata Besochenu Lachiosenu, Imra Adam Kiloheir Betorah Velo Bemitzvos, Ki Einani Ki Minatorah Omitzos. There's no one more indigent, there's no one more impoverished, there's no one more poor than somebody who has no Torah and no Mitzvos in their life. We're living in a county of 120,000 poor people who live in mansions and gated country clubs, but who are poor who are poor because they're empty and they're hollow, and in many cases they're searching and they're looking, and we have responsibility and It happened in our vicinity, 
we live in this county and you come across a person who's not observant, who doesn't know Torah and mitzvahs, and they bagel you with an oi or a krechts or whatever they're doing to let you know they're Jewish. It happened imach. When you're online at Costco and someone makes some allusion to the fact that they're Jewish because they want you to know, that's the Baal Shem Tov's imach ayin ra, ozen shamas. They said oi vei when they put their thing on the checkout because they want you to say, would you like to come for a Shabbos meal? <laughs> Do you know that Rabbi Brody has a Friday Night Live program at our amazing synagogue? Do you, have you heard of Lag Baomer? Are you a pyromaniac? Do you like bonfires? <laughs> Ozen Shomas, it happened, Imach says to Orachayim, this notion of Achiyamuch is not just financially, economically, but even more is true spiritually. There's nobody more poor, there's nobody more indigent or impoverished than a person absent Torah and mitzvahs. And Vehechazakta, the responsibility to lift them up and for them to live with us. Why? Because they're our brother. Because they're our brother and sister, says the Orachayim, is true in the spiritual realm as much as it's true in the physical realm. Good. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So the Kliyakar says, now we're going to put it all together. First half of the Parsha is all about Shemitah. Second half of the Parsha is all about the poor person. What does one thing have to do with another? So listen to another insight that's said in the name of the Bashem Tov. Today's a Bashem Tov day. A Bashem Tov day. Our parsha says that at the end of the seventh year, that every seventh year, rather, the, the farmers asked by the Torah to leave the land fallow. Don't plant, don't harvest, forfeit your income for a year. And the Kliyakar, back at the beginning of the parsha says, I alluded to it earlier, the Shemitah is an exercise in Amuna. Six years you work diligently. But what happens in those six years? You plant and you, you plow, you plant, you harvest, you nurtured, and you were the one who said, let's plant this exact species. And you're the one who had the insight how to lay out the farm. And you're the one who worked tirelessly and hard. And what will you be tempted to do? As you harvest and you count your money from selling your produce at the market, you'll say, it's my hand, it's my genius, it's my hard work, it was my initiative. So at the end of six years, you're at your all-time low of arrogance and ego and taking credit and feeling independent. Says Kliyakar, you know what happens? Shemitah comes along and it humbles you. And it says, take a year off, buddy, because it's never all about you. Go to the Beis Medrash and learn about Amuna and Bitachon and Dveikos. Spend time remembering that Hashem is the one who's responsible for our success. Hashem is the one who gave you the, the creativity and the vision. He gave you the strength for that back-breaking work. He gave you the rain and He protected you from the insects. And you spend the seventh year remembering so you're ready to go out for another six years of working but not becoming vulnerable to feeling it was all up to you. Says the Baal Shem Tov, what happens when the farmer comes off the year of Shemitah and that farmer, after a year, a sabbatical with no income, runs into a poor person? What is the farmer likely to say? Says the Baal Shem, the farmer is likely to turn to the poor person and say, give you tzedakah? Nobody gave me tzedakah in my sabbatical year. I learned to live with nothing for a year. Learned to live with nothing. I spent the whole year with Amuna and Bitachon. I spent the whole year just trusting that Hashem would provide. So go trust Hashem would provide. Not the Shul Dues Adjustment Committee and not the School Scholarship Committee and not Tom Shabbos. I'm not giving you my tzedakah because I lived off of Amuna for a year. 
you live off of Emuna for a year. Says the Baal Shem Tov, that's why the Torah, following the laws of Shemitah and following the year of working on Emuna, gives us the laws of how to relate to a poor person and tells us that attitude that I live off of Emuna for a year, that's for you. That's what you need to work on for you. But your brother or sister, don't lecture, don't preach to them about Emuna. They need help, you help them. You help them. You know, it's been said, there's a great expression, pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. Pray like it all depends on God. When you're davening, it all is, a, Hashem, I need you. You are 100% the reason. When you pray, it's all about God. And when you work, work so hard as if it all depended on you. So the Baal would amend it. And he'd say, pray as if everything depends on God. When it comes to those around you, act as if everything depends on you. When it comes to your year and your life and your livelihood, emuna. It all depends on God. When it comes to the livelihood and the needs of the people around you, it all depends on you, not on God. You have a responsibility to step up and to make a difference. And to make a difference. There's another insight that you can offer. My friend, Rabbi Dr. Uh, Daniel Lerner in Baltimore shared this insight with me. And I love this insight. He took the Baal Shem Tov and he took it to the next step. And he said the following. What else does the farmer feel at the end of that year of living off of Emuna? The farmer knows what it's like to be hungry. The farmer knows what it's like to worry how to pay his bills. The farmer knows what it's like to, have, to be anxious and have to rely on faith. That means that also positions the farmer to be even more sympathetic to the poor person. Because now the farmer, sa farmer says, I only went through this for one year. You poor person who has to go through it, in some cases for a lifetime. I should not be less sensitive. I should not lecture and preach that you can do it, I can do it. Adarabah, to the exact opposite. Whatever we've been through in life, we went through to sensitize us to help other people. The Gemara Barachos Davav says, The reward for fast day, it comes from the tzedakah that you give on a fast day. The reward comes from tzedakah? Shouldn't the reward come from fasting? By the way, based on this, the Mishnah Bura says, we have a minhag to give tzedakah on a fast day. How much tzedakah? The amount of the value of the meals that I skipped that day. So if normally I eat a breakfast at Dunkin' Donuts and I get the medium coffee and the sausage and the croissant and then the coffee roll, I'm starving. And I get that every day and that adds up to X, that's what I gotta give to Staka. If normally I go to Starbucks, I'm not talking about the cashers of Starbucks, but I spend $70 on my caramel, latte, swirl, upside down, grande, backwards, mocha, choca, whatever. So I spend that on myself every day and I skipped it because today's a fast day says the Mishnah Bura, then whatever meals I skipped, and that's the money I saved, that's exactly what I pledged at Staka. What's the connection between fasting and Staka? So that's what my buddy, Rabbi Lerner, suggested. What the Gemara means is at the end of a fast day, you now know what it's like to be hungry. Take that feeling of knowing what it's like to be hungry and motivate you to give Staka. Find someone who's hungry, not just on a fast day, and give them Staka, the value of the meals that you skipped. Whatever you went through in life that was hard, use that experience of what you went through. You had infertility, help people going through infertility. You were poor, help someone who was poor. You struggled in marriage or whatever area in health, go find people going through what you went through and use your experiences to help that other person. 
How do you help somebody? Imach, when you use your experiences to help that person. Have a great day.